several miles off the main highway, tucked away in a secluded canyon on prime vineyard property, stands a rustic barn that was built many decades before the vines around it were planted. In that barn, a sophisticated broadcast and recording studio has been built. The barn also has a well-hidden root cellar stocked with many of the world's most exceptional wines, only to be shared with guests who secretly come to offer their insights and tell their stories. Guests are sworn to secrecy and are shuttled to the studio aboard a John Deere tractor. Those who cannot make the journey in person are interviewed by satellite hookup, and sometimes the crew simply sneaks away with microphones in hand and interviews guests in barrel rooms, wine cellars, and other magical places. All of this is done like clockwork every single week so that we can bring you another episode of Grape Encounters Radio. Peel me a grape Crush me some ice Skin me a peach Save the fuzz for my pillow And it is time for your weekly Grape Encounter And I am so excited to introduce our first guest today Because she is somebody I met last year At an event you heard me just rave about I tell you what, I go to so many wine events all over the world But I can't think of a single event that I loved as much as Wine Song 2016. I imagine I'm going to love Wine Song 2017 even more. But gosh, what an amazing, crazy, wonderful time. And the event director of Wine Song is with me now, Jamie Peters. What did you do to me? You have jaded me when it comes <laughs> to all other events. I'd say I'm sorry, but I'm not. I'm not sorry. I'm glad you love us. You're my new best friend. <laughs> oh, I love that. So I want to talk about this from kind of a little different perspective, perhaps, than people would expect, because I understand that there are people that may be listening far, far away from here, even people who tune into us online in other countries that may or may mm-hmm. not come to Wine Song. The further away they are, probably the less likely they are to come. But then, you know, now that I say that, you had people from countries I've never even heard of last year. Well, yeah, some longtime guests of ours are from Anguilla. And I don't even know. Where Anguilla is. (laughs) Caribbean. Okay. Caribbean. Okay. Tomato, tomato. And they just come every year? They come every year, but they're also big donors. They've been donating an amazing trip to Anguilla for two for years. And the gentleman is a master sommelier, and there's a boulevard named after him in Anguilla. It's crazy. No, get out of here. I swear to God, I had no idea. I found out from our guests that got back this past year from that trip. But it's an amazing trip. And what I understand, I haven't been to Anguilla yet, is that it is one of the most hospitable places you could ever go. And so I thought, wow, that's amazing that he's been so generous with us all these years. So yes, he and his lovely wife come out and they bring some students that are also studying wine and hospitality. So first, let's talk about what Wine Song is. You know, anybody that's a longtime listener has definitely heard me talk about Wine Song. In fact, we talked about it many times last year. But the event is actually a benefit. And and really, the point of this interview, to a large degree, is how the wine industry and also the food industry teams up to help people further causes that are socially very important. And you actually work for the district hospital. You have one hospital in Mendocino. That's correct. It's Mendocino Coast District Hospital, and it services 600 plus square miles. So that's a heck of a lot of people. And it's a rural hospital, but it's 
a pretty amazing hospital, I have to say. I'm very proud to say that I'm part of the foundation who has helped them to be able to purchase amazing life-saving equipment, including you know, ambulances. We have a, a great state-of-the-art ambulance, and they're ready for a new one probably in the next year. Do you have a helicopter? Well, we don't have one, but we work with Reach Air and CalSTAR, and they are local air ambulances. So, yeah, they, you know, you you never want to hear the sound of the helicopter because that means that someone's in distress. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But, man, is it good to know that you have that there. Well, I think what's so fascinating about this is there are so many hospitals and other very important organizations and causes that could never survive if it wasn't for their fundraising activities. And, What you've done with this event has really, I think, taken it to another level. You've raised the bar because at your auction, I should really say auctions that go on there. Right, right. You're raising like close to a million dollars. Can I say that on the air? Close to a a million bucks? (laughs) Well, every year is different. You know, I mean, honestly, it's like the the event is still – the, the cost to produce the event, it hasn't fluctuated much over the years. But, you know, where we really find whether it's a successful year or not is based on how we do in our auctions. So, you know, we started – we're in our 33rd year. So we started so long ago that it wasn't even an auction to start off with. It was just a wine tasting event that happened in the parking lot of Harvest Market. And then the first year we had it at the gardens, it was just in the Dahlia Gardens, and that was it. And then they had a small, they started to have a small auction from that, but it grew. And there have been several individuals along the way that have really helped to, helped us to grow the event into what it is today. So I'm really riding on the coattails of so many people that came before me. Well, I think what's so amazing about this and why I think this conversation is so important is that there are so many people that are caught in the position of not having the funding not having the resources that they used to have as we live in a world that is constantly on the chopping block where we just keep taking money away and away and away and away. And it's so hard for a place like your hospital to survive if they didn't do something like this. And yet, you know, and you hear people, you know, lots of organizations have fundraising events and, you know, and depending upon the organization and what they're fundraising for, they're happy if they made 5,000 bucks. But Mm -hmm. you guys have worked this so meticulously over the years to turn it into an event that everybody wants to go to. And the side benefit is you get a million bucks or close to a million bucks a year now. You might top that this year. That's stunning to me. That you could actually it's, do that. It's kind of been our glass ceiling for a long time, and it's it's definitely a goal of mine. But I have to say that the folks that come to the event, I mean, certainly we have quite a number of locals, although I dare say we have just as many locals that volunteer for the event, including many of the uh, staff at the hospital th- itself, and uh, which which is incredible. You know, I mean, they don't have to, but they choose to support us. And uh, so that's really great. But the people that come, I mean, it's it's kind of become this whole family reunion. So people maybe found us through word of mouth a few years ago, or maybe at another event, we were offering a VIP weekend at Winesong, and they continued to come. So much of the money that's made in the auctions, especially the live auction, are from people that don't necessarily need to use our hospital. And and if we didn't do this event, and we didn't invite them out and treat them like the family that we truly feel that they are, they wouldn't write us a blank check. 
You know, I mean, it's really amazing um, that that happens. And we do still have so many locals that are also incredibly supportive. I mean, every ticket that's sold, every, you know, auction item that's that's purchased, everything that's donated, I mean, that all contributes to the greater good for us. But, you know, I, when I was there last year, I talked to a number of people that were, you know, from far away. I mean, people come yeah. from all over the country because, right, they do. Be, because the main thing is it's not just a – great cause, it's a great event. And as far as wine events are concerned, I should say food and wine events are concerned, this is world class. It really doesn't get any better than this. If it were bigger, it would probably be unmanageable. I mean, from the standpoint of the person who is attending the event, there's more food than you could possibly eat, more <laughs> wine than you could possibly drink, more beauty than you can possibly absorb. And we didn't even really talk about the fact that it's in the Mendocino Botanical Gardens, which are just, I don't know, probably the finest setting that I have ever seen for a wine event. And it would make perfect sense for somebody who wanted to have you know, the perfect sort of weekend wine experience to get on a plane and go. Yeah, because it's we be, have, it will yeah. this this event will not disappoint you, and I'm not here to do a sales plug. I'm just saying. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, do, do you, and and I'll I'll ship you your check later. No, we have folks that you know come out every single year from Florida. Every single year, they've been coming for probably 20 years. We have a gentleman that drives up from Hollywood every single year. Which, which, which um, is so to, to, put that, to put that into perspective, from Hollywood to Mendocino is. What, a, like a 14-hour drive, something like that? The way I heard they drive, it's about 10 hours. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I just heard that. It could be just a nasty rumor. I don't know. Okay. Hey, we're talking, um, to, we're talking to Jamie Peters. She <laughs> is the event director of Wine Song. Been going on for 33 years. Gets my vote as the single best wine and food event that I've ever been to. I haven't been to them all, but boy, I've been to a lot of them. And in terms of what I like and enjoy, this is just it. Anyway, we're going to be back with Jamie in just a second. We'll talk more about Wine Song. Talk more about how you, if you've got an organization that you're trying to raise money for, how you can take a few cues from Wine Song and other events like it and set your sights high because you'd be surprised at how successful you might be if you didn't settle for second or third best. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. Your Grape Encounter with David Wilson will continue from our Central Coast Wine Country studio in the quaint, friendly, and historic town of Atascadero, California. Don't forget to join our Grape Encounters Radio Facebook group page, where incredibly fun people just like you share ideas and frequently get together to share a bottle as well. They say wine is a truth serum, which is why you'll never hear any fake news on Grape Encounters Radio. Here's David. Still need a soul. All right, back with Grape Encounters Radio. And tell you what, if you're going to do one thing this year, one big wine thing this year, make it wine song. Remember me talking about it last year, and I talked about it after the event. I didn't try to convince anybody that I had been to the event before, because I hadn't. It was my first time. It was off my radar. 
It is definitely on my radar now. It's something that I will do every year that I possibly can. With me is Jamie Peters. She's the event director for Winesong. You have been involved with Winesong for how long now? This is my fourth year as the event director and probably my eighth or ninth year involved with the event. I started as a volunteer. So you had some experience with it before you actually became the big kahuna for the event. Yes, that's true. However, I I do have to admit that nothing quite prepares you for the level of detail. That's what I was going to ask you. Does this scare you every year? Well, I have to say, actually, last night was only my second stress dream about the event. (laughs) So so how does that stress dream go? Uh, Wine songs next week. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, where's the food? I don't have the gift bags. I don't have this. I don't have that. It's next week. Are you kidding? It is, in fact, on September 8th and 9th. Now, you've got some interesting honorees and people that are going to be involved this year. You have Niels Venge from Saddleback Cellars there. And there is something very, very, very special about this man. And I'll let you say what it is. Well, we might have different ideas. He's a sweetheart. He has been attending Wine Song and donating to our auction for years. He is the sweetest, nicest, just great guy. He's just a great guy. And everywhere he goes, he makes friends with everybody. And Saddleback Cellars is is certainly uh, an amazing, amazing uh, winery. And they have just a stellar reputation. We wanted to honor him. And here's the type of guy Niels is. He says, Jamie. That's so nice of you. But, you know, you also have some really great guys in Mendocino County, which is absolutely true. And, you know, every year we want to honor somebody. And and it's just that this year we we were really thinking about Niels a lot. But he was like, oh, no, no, you should ask somebody else. Like, there are other people locally that are so wonderful and, and deserving, which he's not wrong at all. But Niels was who I wanted this year. And so he very kindly acquiesced. Well, I would say this, that if Wine Song is, in my book, the most perfect wine event, then Niels Van Gay, in many people's book, is the most perfect winemaker. He is one of the distinguished few that has earned perfect 100-point scores. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and that is the most difficult thing to do, to have somebody like Robert Parker say – your wine is perfect, that it cannot be improved, is about the highest honor that you could possibly have. Robert Parker doesn't give out 100-point scores indiscriminately. And we're not just talking about 100-point scores, but just amazingly high scores that winemakers would kill for, that they will never attain anything even close to that. And yet this man takes it all in stride. And, you know, maybe it is the attitude that he has as a person that makes it easier for him to make great wines because there isn't the pretentiousness there. It's all about having fun. And don't you feel, Jamie, that the attitude of a winemaker is almost always reflected in the wines that they make? Absolutely. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Yeah. A part of them ends up in the bottle, especially if they cut their finger (laughs) on the bottling line. There's that, but I try not to think about that aspect. (laughs) So what do you you say to somebody that is out there that would want to do an event like this? I mean, first of all, why is it that wine is such an easy thing to use as a catalyst for creating an exceptional event? If you got wine and food, people will come if it's good. Right. Right. You know... That is the million-dollar question, but the thing is, people do love their wine, right? Life's too short, right? So you drink great wine, you drink great beer, you have great coffee, you have great food. People are realizing that they don't necessarily want to settle, and the time that they have here, they want to enjoy and savor life. 
So for an event like Wine Song, they have this beautiful venue outside in this coastal botanical garden. And there are all these wines and 50 food purveyors, executive chefs, restaurants, caterers, and so forth. And it's just kind of a slice of life. You slow the pace down. And you really just kind of enjoy and savor your experience. And I know other people do it. There are other really wonderful wine auctions out there. But I think that we bring our own particular brand of California coastal casual to wine song and also just constantly show appreciation because we are a small community and we really, really do appreciate people choosing to spend time with us. You know, one of the things I really wanted to mention too, so many times as an owner of a wine shop, I can't tell you how many times somebody will walk through the door that I've never met and they won't even look around. They don't buy a glass of wine. They don't buy a $2 trinket and they want a donation for an event. Can you donate Mm -hmm. a gift basket? Can you donate, you know, a case of wine? If you're doing events, don't do that to people. You should work with people that you do business with. You know what I'm talking about? And then so many of these events, what happens is they'll go into a wine shop or someplace and they'll be given wines that aren't selling, that are are terrible. Right. And then they pass them off on their guests And then they wonder why the event's not successful. And I will say that there are so many wineries. I would love to get out to every single one of them. And so I oftentimes will do other events, like there's a a great Pinot uh, Festival in Mendocino that I can't get to. I'll I'll go to uh, Taste of Dry Creek here in Sonoma and go to all those places and try their wines, you know, because I do want to give my patronage to others. I don't want to be perceived as always asking for something, right? Well, I think we're all in this together. Yeah, and I think one of the things that you guys give back is that when you're at Wine Song as a winery, you have been vetted out. You're not going to allow a crummy winery to be there because it's about your prestige as an event. And it's almost like giving that winery a gold medal by saying, you know what, we think you're among the best and deserve to be at an event like this. And people see that and they go, you know what, then it must be a great winery. And then you do a lot to promote those wineries. And I think that's the way it should be. I got so angry one night I was asked to speak at an event it was a wine tasting fundraiser, but they were raising the funds by selling tickets for $100 to come to this event. And they wanted me to talk about all the wines that they were serving. These wines, they were junk wines. And I knew exactly what had happened, that they had just taken in anything they could get. I was so upset. And I will never do that again. But we won't end on that negative note. I'm going <laughs> to say it very clearly. Wine Song, an amazing event for wine lovers and foodies or both. It's really, really amazing. Starts with a Pinot celebration on Friday, September 8th from 1 to 4 p.m. At Little River Inn. Which is a wonderful place where the Little River Band was born. No, I made that up. Okay. Definitely tall tales. And then Saturday, September 9th from 11 to 2 is the wine and food tasting that's followed up by this auction, which is just an unbelievably fun thing to attend. And that goes on until 5 p.m. 5 o'clock. Yeah. And there are great lots there. There are international vacations and domestic trips and wine excursions and rare and cult wine collections, artwork. It's incredible. All right. So plan on gaining weight. Right. If you want more information, go to winesong.org. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Perfect. Jamie, we got a buzz. I have an interview that I couldn't squeeze in. You know, I was up in Oregon for a four-week series of shows. And there's one wonderful interview of family, the Lang family. I don't know if you know the Lang family winery, but they are amazing winemakers, especially Pinots. And since your event is so Pinot-centric, I thought I would squeeze this last and very warm and wonderful interview in 
after you. What do you think about that? That's fantastic. All right. We're going to be back with more Grape Encounters. My thanks to Jamie Peters. Thanks for being on, Jamie. We will see you in September. Okay. That's that's it. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters after this. Like certain wines, he's syrupy, sweet, and has long legs. Here's David Wilson. All right, we are back with Grape Encounters Radio. It's our Oregon Odyssey through the Willamette Valley. We are at Lang Estate Winery and Vineyards. We are looking out over the valley. I can see Mount Hood in the background. Let's start by introducing everybody that's here. First of all, Don Lang, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And your partner in crime who started this all, Wendy, is here. Great to be here. And slowly but surely launching the coup that will take over the winery is Jesse. Great to be here as well. Now, you're both winemakers, co-winemakers. Yeah, we still make all the wines together as a team. And like any good winery, it takes a team of growers and winemaker. And mom, you're a winemaker as well? I tend to run the back of the house in hospitality. Yeah, and doing a really good job, by the way. We've got a table full of wine. Anyway, we're sitting out on the patio. And first of all, I appreciate you guys having me here. We got a chance to go through the winery and go into the barrel room and taste some of the wines. And I was just absolutely blown away by what we tasted. I'm going to start with you, Jesse, and just let you give me a rundown of what you guys are doing here on the property. And then we're going to kind of back up and talk about the history and how we got here. Sure. We just celebrated our 30th vintage last fall, so that's pretty exciting. I don't know if I want to speak for my folks since they have two microphones as well, but when we started this whole project, they started 30 years ago in 1987. I don't think anybody could have even dreamed that the Willamette Valley would have reached the level of acclaim that it has worldwide now. So had you been born then, would you have advised <laughs> them against it? Everybody would have advised them against yeah? it. Yeah. Wine Spectator, every banker you could throw a rock at. Yeah. They all advised against it. And due to their perseverance and fortitude and vision, they made it happen. So I'm a beneficiary of that. And so let's jump over to you, Don, for a second, because it was your idea originally, right? Well, Wendy and I, we became totally infatuated with Pinot Noir and asked the question, where do you do that in the new world? Where do you grow and make a world-class Pinot Noir in the new world? But and you had no experience with it. Well, no, I take that back. You were making wine yeah, right at that yeah, time. I, yeah, I, I worked for a number of wineries in Santa Barbara County before we came here. Yeah, but what did it take to get you to Oregon, I guess, is what the real question well, is. Well, I was Be- drinking a couple of bottles of Oregon Pinot Noir. It was, like it was an Irie and an Erath, and after we had those wines, we came up. It was clear to us that this was the place to make Pinot Noir in the new world. But you guys were in a great place, though. You were on the Central Coast, which is where we're headquartered, and you were down in the Santa Ynez Valley in Santa Barbara, right? Those areas. Yes. Oh, yeah. And at that time, that was a great place because land wasn't expensive then, right? The industry was just taking off down there. Yeah. And so why would you not want want to stick around there when that was starting to catch fire? Well, for us, the paradigm for Pinot Noir was Burgundy. And when we tasted the Oregon Pinot Noirs, they seemed to be within that paradigm. And so we actually preferred the profile of the Oregon Pinot Noirs and therefore threw everything in a truck and moved here. Wow. And you actually built this property up from the ground? Yeah, this house was here and there was a meadow right below the house here was the first six acres. That was open and the rest of this was timbered. Had anybody surveyed the land, studied the soil, anything like that? Or was it a roll of the dice? 
I mean, because now it's more obvious right. the grapes are doing well, but then, yeah, you know, yeah. it's like, let's buy a house and yeah. hope to goodness that the grapes grow here well and we can make good wine from the property. Well, we spent a lot of time investigating the area. We started out in southern Oregon and worked our way up the valley because we were a little thinking. Okay, he makes it sound like you tasted two bottles of Pinot and filled the truck with your stuff and came up here. Oh, no. It was more than that. Was, that would know, be we dumb luck. Yeah, we weren't <laughs> inebriated. <laughs> it was like, no. hey, baby, let's throw this. <laughs> no, it wasn't that at all. No, we did a little research. You know, after we drank the Erath, I called Dick Erath, and they put him on the phone, and he said, come on up. So we did. Two weeks later, we were up here, and you know, we flew into Eugene, and we still had sort of that California mindset. It's like, oh, we don't want to go any further north than Eugene. Oh, Oh my God. You know, so we went to Southern Oregon first and worked our way up the coast. But as we worked our way up the coast, it became clear that this is the place to grow the Pinot that we wanted to make and drink. So who advised you against it at this point in time? Everybody. Every, everybody. I mean, so you guys know a lot of people in the wine industry, obviously, sure. at this point in time. And you tell them, we're going to head up to Oregon. The frozen north. It was the frozen north. And make Pinot. So what kind of responses did you get? You're going where to do what? <laughs> Because at that time, anybody that left California to go to Oregon was going to smoke pot, right? Why would that? you have to leave California? <laughs> well, yeah, nobody smoked pot in Santa Barbara in 1980, oh, <laughs> whatever. Like, well, they were doing other things, I guess, at this point. Jesse, the wine business, you've been in it then since you were a newborn, basically, right? Yeah, to some degree. Yeah, I think that's pretty much fair to say. And at what point did you decide that you would want to stay in the wine business with a family as opposed to doing something like, say, become I mean, a folk singer or something. Yeah, something crazy like that. Well, you know, as soon as I couldn't hit a curveball, the major league shortstop position was out of the question. I'm too short to play basketball. So I got a scholarship to study winemaking, enology, and viticulture in New Zealand from my alma mater, Oregon State, through the ag department. I had that opportunity to somehow con those people and give me one of those positions. So I went to New Zealand. And now I had been involved here with the farming. I really enjoyed the farming and assisting my parents in a lot of the aspects. But when I touched down there, like two weeks into my wine studies in 1990, at Lincoln University. That was when I was like, okay, and that was it. So how sold were you on being in the wine business prior to that, if you had to put a percentage on it, versus once you got to New Zealand? Yeah, maybe like 40, 30%. I mean, our winery has evolved and changed quite a bit since yeah. that time. You know, it's a lot different now than it was then. But I think just the sort of being around more people my age that were really interested in making wine making and viticulture a career, that was enlightening to me. And then I largely grasped the opportunities that we had and felt like, wow, okay, cool. That's something, you know, taking that to another level, which is something we've always aspired to do every year. So. Okay, but you're sitting in this really ultra cool place, New Zealand. Yeah. Was there well, ever a point where you said, I think I'm moving to New Zealand to make wine? <laughs> yeah, when I Seriously? held like a nine pound brown trout on a fly rod, that was... <laughs> Was pretty cool. I was like, I should move here. But we have rainbows of that nature here in the Willamette Valley. So I wasn't missing out too much. But New Zealand was a great experience. It was incredible. I haven't been back, I'm sad to say. But really, that's kind of where it codified my intentions to make world-class wine. So. so mom, what is it like working together as a family here? My experience, at least in talking to lots and lots of wine families, is that it seems that families that make wine together get along better than 
families that say run a body shop together or something else. Well, it, we have it, Pinot Noir, not hubcaps. That helps. <laughs> she is the comedian, right? Yeah. No, I mean seriously, were there bumps in the road or has it been fairly smooth? It's a business first and foremost, and then we're also a family. So you know everything that goes along with both of those endeavors is part and parcel. But a family in business, this particular business, we do find ourselves feeling rather fortunate. I mean, there are a lot of different directions we can go. There are a lot of different tasks we all take on. We have a lot of opportunities, I think, to support each other and be the best that we can be in the various aspects of this business. I mean, so what are the things that are most likely to cause a family argument? Drinking all of my champagne. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to make sparkling wine. Let and now me... I'm making sparkling wine and she's going to drink it all. So you're making sparkling wine yeah, just so that you don't uh-huh. have to hear her say, <laughs> yep. don't drink my yep. champagne. Mm-hmm. That's, that's exactly pretty much. Good. That's how it came that's to pretty pass. simple. Have you made sparkling yet? Not on a commercial basis. You know how to do it. Well, no, that's not true. I mean, he's made a beautiful sparkling wine. I don't know what he's talking well, about. Well, it's not Look quite disgorged and done yet. So it's not okay. I asked what causes them to fight yeah. and they immediately get into <laughs> an <laughs> argument here. So the sparkling is for mom, really? Yeah. Actually, look me in the eye and say that you're doing this for profit or doing <laughs> yes. this for mom. Say, I'm doing this for my mother. I'm making Pinot Noir sparkling wine for my mom, Wendy Lang. Yeah. Wow, that's beautiful. Where will the Willamette Valley be 10 years from now? And where will you guys be 10 years from now? For a family like ours, it's so entrenched in the day-to-day operations of what we do and the farming and the winemaking and the business. It's hard to forecast where we'll be 10 years from now because we're pretty obsessed with the current strategy for what we're doing right now. All right, let me rephrase the question. Where do you want to be 10 years from now? I don't even know, man. I'd like to have my daughter be 10 years old and awesome like she already is. I'd like for my parents to have more time to do things that they want to explore outside of wine. And I don't know. Would you like to see your daughter follow in your footsteps and be involved in the wine business? <laughs> I know. She's only six months old, so we'll see. <laughs> she loves wine. You've got to start them early, Jesse. You I know. know. You can't force them. You know, we sat around this table years ago and Jesse said to us, do you want me to work for you or not? And then we said, well, of course we do. But we didn't want to pressure you to do so. We wanted absolutely no pressure on you to join this business business. It's a tough business. We couldn't have been more tickled to have him say, you know, that he wants to come and work here. It's like, okay, well, that's great. Did you guys sneak off into your private space that night and high five each other? Well, we drank some champagne. (laughs) And then did you, Jesse, in your private space say, someday this will all be mine? No, not at all. No, it can't possibly be all his because he's got a daughter. Yeah, no. (laughs) Did you have siblings? I have one junior sister, yes. Okay. Is she involved at all? She's in the wine club. She's in the wine wine club. club. (laughs) She went to brown you you take her money yes (laughs) hey we are at the lang estate winery and vineyards talking to mama lang papa lang and baby lang right wow baby don't get that very often and we're gonna take a quick break here for just a second and then we're gonna come back and get a little more serious if it's even possible don shaking his head now jesse's pouring more wine which is a good sign that things are not going to get more serious mom is now holding her glass over there mayhem is breaking out at the table as wine is pouring flying glasses are moving we're going to take a break we'll be back with more grape encounters right after this he's setting down the wine glass and picking up the microphone here's your grape encounters host david wilson down in the boondocks, down in the boondocks, 
back with Grape Encounters Radio, and we are in Oregon, and I'm making up for the error of my ways, because we've done shows from just about every corner of every wine country that I can possibly think of, but Oregon ain't one of them, and it's one of them that really deserves love the most, especially places like Lang Estate Winery and Vineyards, and we're with Don, Wendy, and Jesse, and I really appreciate you guys having me here today. You have a great gig here. This is one of the really, truly outstanding views. Did you make a good deal on this property and house when you bought it? I'm not going to ask how much, but you coming know, the, from California, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah, the answer is yes, yeah. But the really the touching story about it is the old folks who sold us this place actually had a better offer, but liked us more. So this was an old folks' home. <laughs> Yeah, it was. It is now, again, once again. (laughs) You know, I think one of the interesting things is is that you were in the business in California. California certainly had a big jump on winemaking over Oregon. So I teased you a little bit earlier about coming here sort of in the dark, but the truth is you brought a lot of knowledge to the area. Jesse, brag on mom and dad for a second, because, you know, there's a lot there that I think has made a big difference in the Oregon wine business. How much impact did your family have on what we see here today in the Willamette Valley? Well, I don't believe that they considered themselves pioneers when they moved here. They were kind of following in the footsteps of some of the first generation of wine growers and winemakers. But do you ever say to your friends, uh, my mom and dad are pioneers? I think that that perspective has maybe evolved a bit to say, yeah, I think that's absolutely true, especially in our pioneering aspects of Pinot Gris production in the new world. I mean, we're the fourth producer of Pinot Gris in all of the United States. My folks were the very first to make a barrel-fermented Pinot Gris, a more Alsatian style. Right, well, let's slow down and digest that for a second. So, fourth winemakers to make Pinot Gris in the U.S.? Correct. That's amazing. Yeah, and it's a really poorly told story because Oregon is too busy growing grapes and making wine to market their wines at all. But the first 12 growers of Pinot Gris in North America were here in the Willamette Valley. So as a New World varietal, as an Oregonian, proud to say that that happened here first. Your favorite varietal to make, I'm guessing, it's is Pinot, Pinot Noir, right? And yeah. you make a lot of different Pinot Noirs initially, and then you boil it down to yeah, we're, you know, select wines, We're right? terroirists, to be sure. And I think having a real deep affection and appreciation and humility towards Pinot Noir sort of creates obsession to understand it. And when we farm, they would pick maybe possibly 85 different blocks of North Willamette Valley Pinot Noir. And, and they're oftentimes just a half acre parcel for each of them. So small little discrete lots, but we keep them discrete and as single entities through the entire process. And it affords us an opportunity to learn about them and to educate ourselves and possibly hopefully improve what we're doing at each step of the way. And that sort of feedback loop, I think, plays a big part in what we do. And allows us to feel very intimate with every single block we're working on. So what amazed me is we were in the barrel room and you were showing me that literally each barrel really represented a completely different product from the standpoint of the block that it was picked from, yeah. the yeast that was used. I mean, that to me... Fermentation, the, fermentation, the, clone, the barrels, stock, yeah, soil type, You're elevation. making me dizzy. <laughs> so how many uniquely different barrels of Pinot do you have in that room? 500 maybe. Holy moly. If you came to barrel taste, like if we had more time, David, we could barrel taste like 500 different Pinot Noirs. And I could tell you the provenance and the, the sort of process each one of those wines went through. Do you remember each one? Absolutely not. (laughs) <laughs> but I have tools that help me construct so it. So yeah. you keep this on an Excel spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. 
you said to me in the barrel room that your dad actually keeps track of it in his head. I was being generous. Is, is that true? Is there any truth to that at <laughs> no, all? No, there's no truth to that. He was just tweaking me. So that was the big story. That was my big scoop today. One of my favorite things, though, with regard to recollection is early on, we'd be in a situation like this in public or on the air, and there'd be some question about a vintage, and he would say, you don't remember? And I said, well, Jesse, the vintages start to stack up. And now, I mean, he's got yeah. a bunch of vintages under That's his belt, true. and I just love to be in public when he's going, oh, gosh, you know, I don't remember quite though distinctly. Quite the level of specificity I used to have. <laughs> yeah, right. And I revel in that, frankly. It's sort of sadistic. Dude. Who's the better winemaker? The better winemaker? Yeah. Who's the better winemaker? Oh, my God. I'm you know, the better I, winemaker because I had a better teacher than he ever had. Wow. <laughs> that was a win-win. I didn't know how anybody was going to wiggle out of that question. You're smart. <laughs> Very good. I stole that, but yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Great. So a question to all of you. One of the things that has me just really scratching my head a bit is how Pino has become so critical to the identity of this area. I just wonder whether or not it's at the expense of other varietals that are also really spectacular. Like I had your Chardonnay and I just absolutely went nuts for that wine. And I bought a case. That's how good it was. And it's not cheap. Should have bought three, but... Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> you get a better deal that way. Seriously, I took a couple of sips of it. I said, I want a case of this. But you don't hear too much about Chardonnay and the Willamette Valley, although right. I've noticed that almost every winemaker that we've talked to along this journey has said that they're starting to put some real effort into Chardonnay. So what is the deal? Are there varietals that are getting the short end of the stick? And yes. how do we fix that? And is it going to get fixed? Well, we're trying to fix it. You know, we're making the best Chardonnays we've ever made. You know, historically, it's back to the paradigm. Burgundy is growing great Pinot Noir and great Chardonnay. And, you know, we're able to do that with Pinot Noir. We should be able to do it with Chardonnay. That's been our position all along. And when we got the clonal diversity that the Dijon clones provided for us, I thought we were off and running. And now all of that's coming to fruition now with our Chardonnays. So it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. An area that grows great Pinot Noir grows great Chardonnay. But even more than that, areas that grow great Pinot Noir plant Chardonnay. And there's not that much planted here. There hadn't been. I mean, Pinot Gris is the number one white varietal grown in the Willamette Valley by a significant margin. You're starting to see the transition into Chardonnay in a much more serious and quantifiable sense. So in terms of acreage planted, and some of that is a self-fulfilling prophecy too, where you start to make better Chardonnays and that starts to create more of a groundswell for higher end Chardonnays. They start to get compared to white Burgundy and Chablis and you're like, okay, there's a real potential here. And some of that is an evolution that's pretty natural, but it's been 30 years. I mean, my folks thought that they could make world-class Chardonnay 30 years ago, too. So, Well, wait a second. What happened? 30 years ago, you thought you could make world-class Chardonnay. We did, and, and, and we did. have been. So my question is this. Why has Chardonnay not exploded here in the Willamette Valley? Early on, it was a lack of clonal diversity. Okay. You know, we did not have that. When Dave Lett came, he brought some really fine clones of Pinot Noir, but our Chardonnay clones were not all that well-suited to the North Willamette Valley. Good, oh, not okay. great. Good, not great. Yeah, and then when the Dijon clones came in, you know, that was a game-changer. I think there was a wider opening for us as Oregonians with Pinot Noir 
than there was a Chardonnay. California had created a reputation for Chardonnay that they had not achieved with Pinot Noir. That opening was there, and this is the place to do Pinot Noir, and we did it and made the case that we're doing the right thing. Well, listen, you guys, it's been really nice being with you today. For somebody who wants to find out more about the wine, you can go online at langwinery.com. All right. Hey, listen, it really seriously, it's been a pleasure having you guys on. You guys are a lot of fun. And that is going to do it for Grape Encounters today. Coming to you from the Lang Estate Winery, we will see you back here next week on this awesome radio station.